Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a medical and science-focused podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Metabolic Link. Really excited to be sitting here today because we've got a fascinating topics to talk about, all involving sleep, light exposure, cardiometabolic function. But first, I'm Victoria Field, your co-host, along with my fellow co-host, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, Dr. Angela Poff. Really uh, looking forward to today's discussion. Why don't we kick it off with this first paper all about uh, shift workers, really. Daytime eating prevents mood vul vulnerability in night work. Angela, mm -hmm. do you want to lead us through this study and what the researchers found? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so this was a paper that was published in July 2022, and it was published in PNAS Neuroscience, which is a great journal. Um, the authors come from um, Harvard and University of Cologne in Germany. So a uh, great group doing this work. They clearly are uh, very uh, well-established to do some really elegant studies in circadian biology, uh, which is pretty cool in humans. Um, so this study was basically set up to determine if the time that an individual eats when they are on um, a, a nighttime kind of work schedule, like shift workers would experience, if that dictates um, susceptibility to mood vulnerability. So it's known that shift workers have a greatly increased risk of developing um, depression and anxiety, actually as high as like 25 to 40% increased risk, which is very high. Um, and there's not really a lot being done or even recommended on how to best address this in this particular population. So there was also data um, previously showing that daytime only eating. So if an individual is uh, a shift worker working through the night, but still only eats during the daytime hours when the sun is out, um, can prevent the glucose intolerance that is observed in shift workers. Um, so shift workers also experience glucose intolerance. So aside from this, um, you know, increased risk for these mood vulnerabilities, they also have glucose intolerance. And so daytime only eating in this population can prevent that glucose intolerance that occurs in this in this population. And they're wondering, can that also impact susceptibility to mood vulnerability? And so this was a trial that was performed in healthy participants. And um, they uh, basically, these individuals were in this laboratory setting for, I think, a total of like 18 days because they had a four-day lead into to get their circadian um, rhythms misaligned and then a 14-day uh, protocol um, in which they were on uh, their particular um, uh, rhythm. And so they had the researchers intentionally misaligned the participant's circadian, central circadian clock um, by uh, exposing them to 28-hour day cycles. And so they did this over a period of four days, which then by the end of the fourth day, they were um, 12 hours off the normal circadian cycle. So, um, and then these individuals were randomized. Half of them were assigned to eating um, only during the daytime hours, and half were assigned to eating in daytime and nighttime. Now, they kept everything the same except the time that these individuals ate. So, even calories were controlled, the diets were very specifically controlled, um, and 
uh, everything except when these individuals ate. So, um, they found that those, and, and I guess, so they said, and I thought this was interesting, um, that apparently it's very common in shift workers to eat during both the nighttime and daytime hours. And I, I wonder if that's kind of like, so I'm married to a shift worker. My husband is an ER doctor. He works all exclusively night shifts. And he, so when he, they were describing that, I was like, that's interesting. But I guess, you know, I think about how my husband will come home and then like he wants to stay up and be with the family too and kind of participate in some of our normal stuff with like our kids who are obviously awake during the day and, and myself. And so, you know, I guess in, in retrospect, that is something even, you know, I, my husband does. And, um, and so I used to do as well. I used to be a shift too? worker for writer for an NBC affiliate uh, writing the morning news. Mm-hmm. And it, you want to be a part of like daytime life with yes. everybody. So, of course, you're eating around the clock just to feel normal, right. uh, whatever that exactly. is. But yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyways, that, that surprised me at first, but I, I think it makes sense. So, um, that is the norm, I guess. Most shift workers do eat during both daytime and nighttime. And so, um, what they found was that though the, the individuals who ate during both daytime and nighttime hours, um, were had an increase in uh, depression um, uh, scores by 26.2% and an increase in anxiety scores by 16.1% compared to their baseline. That's a really big a shift in a, like, 14-day period. Um, and they didn't see that occur in the group that was daytime eating only. So even though these individuals are going through a very like disruptive experience, their their central circadian clock really being dramatically shifted, um, just the simple difference of um, not eating during uh, the nighttime hours as well was associated with, there was no association in terms of increased risk. Now, of course, this is all correlation. There's no causality being established here, but it was really striking what they found. And and to kind of support even further, this really might be something uh, substantial going on. They found that the larger the circadian misalignment, the greater the effect. So as circadian misalignment increased, that effect was was observed even more. So um, pretty, there's a lot of shift workers oh, right, yeah. around it's... the world. I, I, I should have looked up the number. I know it's, yeah. it's a significant um, percentage of the population. I feel like this could have really <laughs> dramatic, huge impact. dramatic effects. And I, I, one of the top things that comes to my mind is how, what kind of role does the gut micro uh, gut microbiome mm-hmm. uh, play in, in sort of dance with circadian misalignment? And you know, because you, we already know from some research that. Um, circadian dramatic circadian shifts do affect microbiota communities yeah. from some of the research. So, you know, with this kind of study, I would be so curious to maybe them testing their gut microbiome changes and things along those lines could have been really f- fascinating, I think, to, to add to the mix. Yeah. And um, that is one one area that, the, you know, the authors were kind of speculating as to why this might be occurring, what mechanisms might be at play. Microbiome was one of them that they mentioned. And so it's been shown that circadian disruption will perturb the microbiome. So you see a change Mm -hmm. in um, the species that are present. And uh, some data has suggested a shift towards a more pro-inflammatory microbiota. And then also they mentioned... 
when you have a, a shift from the normal gut flora, you basically have a reduction in what they're calling microbiome-mediated functional pathways. So our microbiome plays a very normal role to our physiology and especially our brain function. So the gut-brain axis is very important. And um, the microbiome is responsible for, you know, synthesizing um, neurotransmitters like serotonin. I mean, a lot of the serotonin in our body is made by the gut microbiome. So if you're shifting the gut microbiome towards a different, you know, composition, you're essentially, and to a composition that has a negative um, you know, outcome perhaps with with, you know, an inflammatory kind of composition, you're also just depleting the microbiota that is supposed to be performing these routine, you know, aspects of our physiology to help support brain function. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a double whammy in that yeah. regard. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I always think about the liver too, because the liver is kind of like, uh, when we eat carbohydrates, it doesn't go directly into the bloodstream per se, but the liver functions as kind of like a carburetor, <laughs> you know, if you're <laughs> into that. And then it, and it tightly regulates the flow of glucose. And that glucose could be carbs you ate from the previous day, right? Mm -hmm. So the liver is the master regulator of metabolism, but there's a lot of emerging data on the liver and circadian biology too. Mm -hmm. And um, and in context of time-restricted feeding. so. Uh, I think about how the liver, the dynamics between the microbiome and the liver function and how that comes into play from a hormonal standpoint because the liver is under hormonal control. Yeah. Uh, and if these people doing shift work are like sleeping in a blackout room or are they exposed to, to light and if that was controlled in this or do they talked about that. Yeah, so I, I don't think it was a blackout room, but they did very tightly control all of the... Um, you know, the diet, the light, the cycle. So even okay. even the group that wasn't eating during the nighttime cycle, they were woke, they were uh, awakened for mm -hmm. that same period of time that the other group was awake. They yep. just didn't eat during that time. So they, yep. they did a really great job like designing this, in my mm -hmm. um, opinion, um, to really suss out the exact impact of our, if you're eating during these night nighttime hours as well. <sighs> Fragmented sleep though. That that must have been rough to participate in that. Wake up, eat. <laughs> yeah. Really difficult. Did they also measure for uh, melatonin and that yeah. whole process they of like did, what happened and there between the groups? A difference between melatonin uh, in melatonin between the groups. Oh, super interesting. Yeah, yeah, because obviously that's tied all in with insulin and it's yeah. just this whole other area. Wow, that's a really fascinating study and, and really helpful because I think probably I would assume, at least from my own experience in this kind of work, it becomes really confusing as to what is the best um, mm -hmm. to like optimize your health, even if you have this overnight work, you know, does it make a lot of sense to fast during that during mm -hmm. that window of time? I, I mean, I'm sharper when I don't don't eat anything, but mm -hmm. it throws in this whole different element when you consider night versus day and circadian rhythms and gut microbiome. It's it's really fascinating research. Mm -hmm. um, well, they did, you mentioned insulin, and, and they did mm -hmm. say that they think insulin signaling may have played a role in this. Right. So um, so one thing they, they mentioned was that there have, has been preclinical research looking at uh, neuronal-specific insulin receptor knockout mice. So what that means is um, they've taken a strain of mice and they have 
uh, completely knocked out expression of insulin receptor only in the neurons. So you have insulin receptor expression everywhere else, um, but in the neurons you don't. And what they see is in these animals, they exhibit mitochondrial damage and dysfunction and oxidative stress in some really important brain regions that are uh, involved in emotional processing, like the nucleus accumbens and the amygdala. And in those animals, they go on to uh, develop and, ex and exhibit uh, depression and anxiety behaviors even in animals and that's from just the you know elimination of insulin receptor in mm -hmm. neurons which is really interesting because we think of you know emotions being a very complicated higher order you know process and it is of course but to think that just the knockout mm -hmm. of insulin receptor receptor can essentially initiate that behavior change, that mood vulnerability in animals is, is pretty fascinating. Yeah. No mention of sympathetic tone or HRV or heart rate? Because um, typically, you know, that I these things so. activate, and it will kind of lead into the paper I'll be discussing, mm -hmm. but yeah. the activation of the sympathoexcitatory response, you know, a decrease in HRV, uh, very consistent with um, hyperarousal. Right. Yeah, the light you know, sort of yeah. effects keeps and you I up. I could see that sort of their cortisol. Did they measure cortisol? So cortisol, like these things, I think are would be important factors, especially with the mm -hmm. insulin resistance, cardiometabolic parameters. Yeah, yeah. it'd also be. Uh, interesting to know what they were feeding them specifically. <laughs> yeah, um, so they did mention it. I think it was you know a pretty like standard kind of diet, um, 45 to 55 percent carbs, um, uh, normal kind of percentage of fat and, and protein. So I think it was, it was, I, I guess, what the recommended kind right. of um, mm -hmm. uh, macronutrient mm -hmm. be interesting would be interesting yeah. to do that while on a ketogenic diet and compare yeah. the two and see if there's any yeah, difference sure. or protective yeah. effect potentially yeah. in comparison. But yeah. that's a really interesting study because it affects so many people. I mean, mm -hmm. both of these papers really affect yeah. so many people. The other paper we're going to talk about um, probably affects the majority of the population, <laughs> I think, because there is a yes. high percentage of people who actually sleep with the light on. This this study is called Light Exposure During Sleep Impairs Cardiometabolic Function. And I think it's something like nearly 40% of the population actually sleeps with some sort of lamp or light on in the room, whether it be they or don't TV. like the dark or TV. Yeah. Totally. Yes. It, that's in that grouping as well. I and yeah. I know, I know people. So this is going to be really interesting yeah. for you if you happen to sleep mm -hmm. um, with the light on because these researchers found some fascinating uh they had some fascinating findings here. Dom, do you mm -hmm. want to kick this one off and kind of run us through uh, yeah. what this looks like? Yeah. And, you know, I've been very interested in light in general, synchronizing circadian biology to optimize metabolic health. I think it's uh, it's been an overlooked uh, field and a lot of influencers and, and researchers are now bringing attention to this. So uh, title of this being light exposure during sleep impairs cardiometabolic function. So really looking at kind of like the dark side of light you know, pun intended, I guess. Right. Uh, so we, we have, uh, this is this paper was also a PNAS paper, a uh, high impact journal, great uh, group of people, Ivy Mason being the first author, Phyllis Z, uh, senior author. And it was done at Northwestern, uh, the University of uh, the Feinberg School of Medicine. 
in collaboration with uh, the chronobiology program with that study of sleep and uh, circadian disorders, also in collaboration with uh, the, the Division of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School. So uh, it was a pretty simple study, a pretty elegant study in, in my mind, uh, and it was a short study. Uh, you know, these, these studies are not super easy to do. Uh, did my PhD in a, a sleep uh, pulmonary critical care, which is also a sleep medicine, and I know polysomnography and organizing and coordinating logistically uh, everything that's done in this study uh, appears kind of simple from uh, from a from a methodological point of view, but I know I can appreciate all the work that went into this. So there was 20 subjects that were selected for this particular study, and they experienced uh, they were monitored over two nights of sleep. One, uh, t 20 subjects, 10 of them went into uh, the study design where they were exposed to, through the course of one night, uh, dim light. Uh, they did not have a zero light, so we were just discussing we, which they had a zero. But it was, uh, you know, speaking, you know, relatively speaking, it was very low level of light. It's under three lux, which could be a night light. It could be a bright uh, alarm clock or something like that. We kind of fit into that. Yeah. <laughs> A full moon if you have a, a skylight or something in your room uh, so a little bit of light but but correlating to what is typically experienced uh, so one night of dim dim light uh, the first group had and and then one night of what would be considered room light uh, 100 lux of, of total light and then the second group just had two nights of dim light there the comparison group and uh, the study design was was pretty simple in regards to looking at cardiometabolic function and biomarkers. The uh, the morning homeostatic model of assessing uh, insulin resistance, a HOMA IR. Uh, they did a two hour uh, glucose tolerance test. Uh, they were given uh, 75 grams of glucose and looked at the 30 minute uh, insulin area under the curve. Was part of that. Uh, they did look at melatonin. And uh, they, so that was the sort of the main things that they looked at. And then with the polysomnography, they looked at the different stages of sleep uh, from uh, four stages of sleep and slow wave being uh, delta sleep or N3 and then REM sleep stage four. They also looked at the HRV and sympathetic tone. Um, so getting into some of the, a little bit of background before uh, kind of setting up the rationale for, th for this study. So, you know, nighttime light has been a big problem. There was a number of studies uh, and they reference seven different studies looking at nighttime light and human health and well-being. And self-reported artificial light exposure in the bedroom during sleep has a profound effect on uh, metabolic health and, and also weight and body composition. For example, uh, for women, it was a small nightlight in the room. Uh, having the TV on uh, was associated with much higher incidence, significantly higher levels of obesity associated with this. And uh, this finding suggests, some of the previous work, that the findings suggest that the bedtime uh, light environment has a very significant negative influence on metabolic regulation. So they go on, the, uh, the intro to it has a number of studies that I was not aware of, but really sets the stage 
for this very simple short study that was done the over the hypothesis of the study was that room light exposure specifically not even that bright 100 lux during habitual nighttime sleeping would be associated with insulin resistance using homo ir uh, they also do uh, the matsuda insulin sensitivity index and uh, in response to the glucose tolerance test and they measure melatonin uh, so in, a diff uh, in addition, they hypothesized that the mechanisms of the light-induced metabolic changes would reduce the sleep quality, specifically the total sleep time. They're looking at sleep efficiency. They're looking at uh, you know slow-wave sleep. And, and then the, the number of arousals throughout the night. Uh, but really looking at you know another, the second hypothesis was to look at the melatonin suppression, if that was something, but also to kind of correlate this to uh, arousal from the perspective of heart rate, uh, heart rate variability and sympathetic tone. So during the actual sleep period. So uh, the data was for a single night of sleep disruption, fairly impressive. So looking at the HOMA IR, I guess the big, the big thing that, or, or just taking a step back, the, the age of the subjects was 26 years, uh, and they randomized uh, the BMI 23, so they were not, they were in good cardiovascular shape. Um, they had, you know, a uh, normal sleep time of like, you know, seven hours. Uh, so normal in every aspect, so they were not, you know, compromised from a metabolic standpoint. So which you could probably perceive that these that these results would be greatly exacerbated in those that were trending towards being more obese or insulin resistant or perhaps even type 2 diabetic. So I, I think the, the most significant sort of results that they uh, showcase here was that the early phase, the 30 minutes uh, for the first part of the glucose tolerance test, that the area under the curve of insulin was significantly higher, um, you know, and the graphs really show significantly higher with room light exposure for one night, and um, and I think that's pretty profound, especially considering that, you know, this was only one night, <laughs> and and mm -hmm. many people experience you know multiple nights of of sleep uh, disruption or or bright light during sleep, and so they were. You know, the graphs kind of show uh, a lot of variability and somewhat of a modest effect on the glucose uh, levels were trending higher with room light uh, compared to the dim light. And and then the, the insulin levels at different time points uh, were uh, with the glucose bolus. But when we look at the area under the curve and suggesting the total amount of insulin that was released, it was significantly higher. So this is, wild. you know, and these were <laughs> subjects that were, you know, kind of normal in every aspect from a metabolic health uh, standpoint. So it's um, pretty significant yeah. in terms of increasing heart rate, uh, causing some insulin resistance, uh, decreasing HRV. Yep. All of these mm -hmm. things are, you know, key to 
well, cardiometabolic mm-hmm. health. And yeah. like you said, it's just one night. If we can imagine over the course of just two weeks what that looks like. Yeah. And then also layer in light before bedtime on yeah. top mm-hmm. of all of that <laughs> that and, so many people get. And they were sleeping. I mean, there was a decrease. Uh, it's probably good to know that there was uh, an overall decrease in the slow wave in the Delta and also, uh, I believe, you know, a, a decrease in REM. But, you know, they were sleeping throughout the night. So they were mm-hmm. getting sleep, uh, but they were they had a higher, a greater increase in stage two sleep or the N2 and suggesting that they're not really making that transition into the stage three and stage four and kind of staying in, you know, stage two sleep is restorative sleep, but it's not as much as you would get with, uh, you know, stage three and stage four. So, and then the the overall, the, the heart rate variability or the heart rate kind of varies throughout the night, but it was definitely trending to be uh, I don't know if they gave the actual percentages, but about like 10% higher throughout the night. So just being exposed to light, maybe it's coming through the lids of the eye or your skin or whatever, just being in that light environment produces a hyperarousal that's activating the sympathetic nervous system and activation of sympathetic nervous system would, you would presume, they didn't measure it here, but that would enhance the release of catecholamines, uh, mm-hmm. cortisol would be elevated, and this is likely contributing to some of the cardio uh, metabolic effects of the biomarker, specifically insulin, insulin under the curve. So, um, so yeah, and I mechanistically it would be really interesting. It's not melatonin. So mm-hmm, uh, you would, so I would definitely expect melon, yeah. a melatonin suppression, uh, but maybe that would be a more accumulative thing that would happen over time. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting because uh, like you said, they saw that increase in the insulin, the area under the curve uh, in the early acute phase of the oral glucose tolerance test. So when we talk about area under the curve, it's basically looking at the total amount of insulin released over the the amount of time that it's being looked at. And so in this in particular, so the total insulin over the entire oral glucose tolerance test was similar, but that early acute phase specifically, the thir- first 30 minutes, it was higher yep. in the group that was exposed to room light. And this is um, actually used classically as like a marker of pancreatic beta cell function. So having a higher early phase early acute phase insulin secretion is associated with beta cell dysfunction and um, is a predictor of type 2 diabetes um, onset. So, um, you know, they were saying that that basically um, even in people with both normal fasting glucose, normal two-hour oral glucose tolerance tests, um, that, that if they have this higher early acute phase insulin response, it is still a predictor of, of type 2 diabetes. And so there's implications for maybe in, uh, people who are exposed regularly to nighttime light. Maybe there, there's a link to increased risk of type 2 diabetes because of that, that mechanism of the early acute phase insulin response. Well, this could be like a major potential contributor to yeah. our health as a society. I mean, yeah. you're looking at like metabolic disease is at an all-time high. It, mm-hmm. You know, we talk a lot about nutrition, but sleep clearly is such an important uh, player when it comes to glucose metabolism and yeah. just cardiometabolic function, but homeostasis and health <laughs> in general is important for everything. So th- these kinds of, kinds of uh, studies are really helpful in um, 
making me feel better about my crazy nighttime routine <laughs> <laughs> to improve sleep, sleep quality. Sleep hygiene, yeah. And I, you know, it's growing so up, I, I would, you know, go over and sleep over other people's house. We always shut the TV off, you know, to go to yeah. bed. But a lot of people just fall asleep with the TV on, yeah, uh, and use the TV to fall asleep to sort of anesthetize themselves, you know, to fall asleep. <laughs> but uh, I don't think there was an appreciation for this. 20, 30, definitely not like 40 years ago when I was a kid growing up. It seems oh, no. like, you know, just having, it was a big thing to have your TV in your room, just keep it on and just go to sleep with that on it. But, uh, but yeah. I think, you know, getting more attention into the interplay between circadian biology, light and cardio, cardio metabolic health and metabolic health in general, mm-hmm. you know, and probably brain health too. Uh, this needs to be put on the radar of people who are doing this. And it might be, you could... You know, if people are especially on the threshold, <laughs> be, you know, the difference between diabetic and non-diabetic could just be sleep hygiene. And <laughs> Can especially, you imagine? <laughs> yeah, in the context <laughs> yeah. of, you know, sleep is also shift workers have higher levels of cancer. Yeah. We know that certain cancers, whole host of cancers are linked pathophysiologically to impaired metabolic health. Yeah. You know, so just think about think about think about it in the context of cancer and brain health mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's. And it's so interesting to think about how dramatically um, our exposure to light has changed. Like we think evolutionarily, I mean, it, you know, later, you know, past just a couple hundred years ago, humans were almost never exposed to significant light yeah. during nighttime um, for all of human history. And I actually was reading, I've read a really fascinating book that was basically like all about how the world um worked in human, you know, behavior before artificial light and how that impacted every aspect of like our society and our our culture and just and your health and all of it. And it was so interesting. And it's just it's really strange to think of how dramatically that has shifted just Mm -hmm. since we now have artificial light. Everything has changed because now you can do things when previously you kind of just, you know, shuttered the windows and and locked in for the night. Yeah, or just let the night lead the way and go to sleep and then wake yeah. up with the sun mm-hmm. without an alarm clock. That, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, is very few people are able to do that. It's something that I've tried to get back into the routine of, of like allow for the sun to naturally wake you up and, mm-hmm. and you, you know, stop eating when the sun goes down really helps improve mm-hmm. sleep qual- quality, I've found. And Can you tell that to my two-year-old? Uh, <laughs> yes, that's, yeah, that's a little harder for sure. I mean, parents, like it's a totally different ball game. A hundred percent. But I do think there's like some things that can potentially be really helpful in, in like my crazy sleep hygiene. Yeah. Tell us about protocol. your sleep hygiene. Protocol. Well, yeah. And I'd love to hear Dom <laughs> yours as well. Shut off all the lights and everything. Yeah. Goes down you sh- We're just glasses. candles. <laughs> candles uh, are kidding. No, we, uh, uh, we basically just, you know, obviously turn down the lights, like dim everything uh, after dinner, you know, eat, try to eat like two, three hours before you go to bed um, to allow for that rest and digest kind of to take place. I've tried so many different experiments with food before bed and that's by far been the best for me. In terms of HRV, I see like dramatic increase in that uh, overnight and decrease in my heart rate much sooner. Um, You know, either getting the blue light, the the space glasses on, the blue light blocking glasses. (laughs) We also have red lights in the house. 
um, that we'll turn to to like dim that crazy blue light that we have in here that's sucking my energy dry. Um, and, uh, you know, not watching, you know, things that are stimulating right before bed or reading things that are, you know, like yeah. the news and things like that right before <laughs> you go to sleep. Um, there's so many different, you know, I don't drink alcohol. We, you know, there's so many different things that impact sleep that you don't even necessarily like think about. Sometimes we'll do like, you know, a bath, those kinds of things. But there are so many like little steps you can take take that um, really make a big difference. Even even, you know, granted, I don't have kids, so I can't speak to it. But, you know, maybe yep. getting the kids involved with could be. <laughs> could be a fun process. Everyone puts on their space glasses and blocks the light out. <laughs> That's one thing, right? Um, Dom, how about how about you? Uh, three things that are really important is just really bright light in the morning. So getting that totally. burst of sun as it's coming up. I mean, we live in Florida. Yeah. Barefoot, uh, right? Yeah, barefoot. Go outside, <laughs> you know, check on the cows, walk to the pasture, <laughs> grounding myself. Play in the dirt, gut, gut microbiome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's that, that really intense bright light in the morning, I yeah. think, kind of sets the stage for uh, sinking your circadian biology to the day. And, and then at nighttime, uh, we have like a refurbished uh, jacuzzi, uh, big concrete structure that we just got running and, and getting uh, heat. So it's kind of analogous to sauna. Mm -hmm. So getting, uh, taking a hot bath, hot shower, sauna, jacuzzi or whatever, elevating your body temperature for a little bit and then getting out and then the vasodilation helps your body dump that heat. Yep. Uh, so I just go from jacuzzi to the pool and swim and just kind of, and then keep, uh, keep, the temperature like 67 in our bedroom and that oh, yes. uh, helps Key. tremendously Forgot with sleep latency. So uh, your body has to drop your temperature at least one degree for you to transition into sleep and you can facilitate that by just keeping your bedroom cool. So bright light, you know, elevate, you know, reducing your body temperature and also just general stimulation. I do wear the, uh, blue blocking glasses at nighttime yeah i watch night netflix i do eat at night though have the heavy meal three or four hours before but i snack uh it's like zero carbs up until dinner and then i'll have some fruit or some keto ice cream pudding kind of thing nice <laughs> that's awesome so, yeah so do eat, but the yeah, temperature but thing though i think yeah, is like really huge. critical i think a lot of people don't realize huge. that my husband likes it like a meat locker status in yep. our bedroom and <laughs> yep. that and honestly i complained yeah. at first but then it was like my sleep quality was going yeah. through the roof um we'll also this is a little i guess uh looks w strangely at we actually will not sleep in the same bedroom even though we're happily married we <laughs> we will literally if we have something coming up important we'll sleep in separate rooms because we are that your significant other can totally keep you up at night from mm -hmm. movement to whatever yeah. and um it's actually one of the best things you could do for your marriage <laughs> not that this is a marriage yeah. podcast but i'm just well, saying it's been helpful for us you're, you're total so just by wearing you know devices you know my wife Wears or I wear yep. or this is a Fitbit, but uh, total sleep time and sleep efficiency and even the stages of sleep are highly correlated uh, with your partner. And I, I don't know if there's mm -hmm. a study on that, but I can tell you <laughs> from experience, we always wake <laughs> up and we check and it's just like you can almost overlay the total sleep time, sleep efficiency and even latency to sleep falling asleep is highly correlated. So, oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. So or their recording of them snoring and when you woke up. <laughs> yes, 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 that's right. You know, I, I always I like, tape my mouth too. 
Uh, yeah, well, we could go. Maybe so we'll cover that. Yeah. One. We yeah, can go into that. Yeah. Yes, we, yeah. we occasionally dabble in that as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always wonder, so so my husband um, works nights, but he, you know, isn't working every night. So if he has a couple of days off in between shifts, like he switches back to like daytime and then he switches back to nighttime. And sometimes it's like yeah. rapid Hard. turnaround. Yeah. and. I mean, just watching him is, like, dizzying to me. Um, I know it has to be terrible. But, um, yeah, but I, I, it kind of makes me think. I wonder, like, because obviously, you know, there's data showing that just being out of sync with the kind of natural circadian rhythm associated with with the sun is negative. But I wonder, you know, which is worse? <laughs> like, switching back for some short amount of time or not at all? Is it worse to switch back and forth? I don't know. I've never looked into Does the he wear a sleep data. monitor? No. And oh, we should be get a CGM on him. Oh, it would <laughs> yeah, be terrifying, I'm sure. Him, <laughs> no, and well, and then he yeah. has like, like uh, Victoria's and saw today. He came off a, a shift this morning and, and we saw him before we were leaving this morning. He was coming home from work and you know, he was, uh, he had a meeting in like an hour and a half because his oh, hospital administration have their meetings during the normal business hours. So he had yeah. to like stay up for that or sometimes he'll sleep for like an hour and then wake up to be in a meeting and then wow. sleep for like two hours. And Oh man, I don't know how he switches back and forth so easily. He must black out that. the room when he goes to sleep, I no. think. No? Oh no, literally. Wow. He it, It's bizarre. I mean, he's a special one. It's strange. He's a, <laughs> he's a dim light he's or like, uh, a lot of oh, light kind of sleeper? He could literally. Oh, okay. Really? Wow. I mean... I tried to get him on the podcast to talk about <laughs> this because he's a very rare, uh, like, <laughs> yeah, amazing yeah. human being. Yeah. <laughs> it's strange, but, yeah, I don't know. I well, let's get some data from him first. So we'll put <laughs> we a CGM him on him and look at his glucose variability. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he doesn't wear any kind of device for sleep, no? No, no he doesn't. we got to do that, too. Yeah. That would be yeah. very interesting he to find out. He can sleep anywhere, anytime. Like, That's amazing. And then meanwhile, you have people like, you know, us where it's, you know, I was telling you, and if we go to a hotel, we have to tape <laughs> the, the like fire alarm lights and unplug the phones because it's like yeah. super, yeah. I guess we're super sensitive. We're, you know, getting more, getting more mm -hmm. light through our eyelids. We have thin eyelids, apparently. I'm not sure what's going on, but it's so wild how um, this is such an important topic, yet we're... You know, there needs to be more conversation, I think, especially even from maybe your physician when you go and like, how's your sleep quality? Like, that's not yeah. really something that's yep. often asked. But clearly the, you know, it's research important. is showing us how important, critically important it is. And maybe this is one of the biggest contributors towards the, the metabolic dysfunction of our society, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's kind of wild and to think about. Psychological health. Like on the drive in, I was listening to, to NPR and they were talking about going through menopause. And one of the people that they're interviewing was saying that the depression, anxiety and things were tightly co correlated to sleep quality. Mm. And uh, that was the, the hormonal dysregulation that's associated with the, the night sweats and things mm -hmm. like that were disrupting sleep. And then that was influencing the psychological measures. And it wasn't the hormones per se, but it was the hormone dysregulated sleep disruption that was wow. actually contributing to that. So interesting. I think I mean, <laughs> with nighttime eating, I mean, with, you know, people working all day and just eating a big meal before they go to bed and then that disrupting their sleep. So 
sleep, I think, you know, there's a dark side of light, too. Mm-hmm. So keeping that dark light on at night. Light. I love <laughs> that. The title of this episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, dark the dark side, side of light. <laughs> the dark side of the moon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's very true and very, super fascinating. And we'll continue to cover um, all of the research that comes out uh, with sleep and its relationship to metabolic health and um, how we can improve that and all improve our sleep hygiene because at the end of the day, it's super important. Um, so, yeah, well, if you, you guys want to check out these papers, you can find it in the description of this podcast. Make sure you subscribe if you want to join us for more uh, research on metabolic health and metabolic based therapies. We'll be covering as much as we can each episode. And of course, leave us a review if you like this podcast so we can keep doing more of them. And thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you guys soon. Thank thanks. You.